Really? They're all for you, Mrs. Robinson. In honor of the other women, what's your favorite on-screen marital infidelity? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with A Walk on the Moon, in which Diane Lane gets both Viggo Mortensen and Leah Schreiber, and she gets to go to Woodstock. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, and I'm going with Dave and Tracy in Election. It starts everyone's life falling apart, but remember the tolerant phase of Reese Witherspoon? It was great. I'm Matt Patches, and I don't have one, because I would never condone this behavior, but if I pretended to have one, I would say Little Children, um, the scene where Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson make sweet, sweet love in the laundry room, because there has there's never been anything sweatier and hotter. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going with Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, because do, 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 nice. etc. I think it was tolerable phase of Reese Witherspoon, just to Did you say tolerant? Myself. Yeah, she. I imagine she's she not as tolerant. Oh, I don't want to talk about any of this. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 20 for Tuesday, April 22nd, 2014. David, I think you have a few things to say to our listeners. Uh, yeah, well, first I wanted to congratulate, to use Patch's word, the uh, people who went to our website, <laughs> fightinginthewarroom.com, to comment on our previous episode. I believe this is actually our uh, Transcendence review. Uh, Matt Bowers and Alex the Dinosaur and someone named JR who really got into a nice discussion there. And also our weekly routine of giving a shout out to the people who leave us reviews on iTunes. We have one this week that also pertains to our Transcendence Episode, which I will point out for all of you listening, I did not participate in. Um, it is by <laughs> Jeffersonian000, and he says, after giving us five stars, mind you, which is uh, really all that matters at the end of the day, I love the podcast. <laughs> Just wanted to get that out first because I'm going to flip a table and blow up all over the Transcendence podcast. And he spoils a lot. Uh, and then yada, yada, yada. Still a big fan, but sometimes you guys sound like ignorant fools. Oh my god, epic. I know epic. that it's some of you. Yeah, do. someone on Twitter, someone on Twitter said that uh Katie was right and I was wrong, and that is m- more often than not the case. I love it when people say that. I I will always compliment you on those reviews. I am the crazy one according to a review on the old podcast thread, so I can live with that. I'm someone the sexy should, one. Yeah, someone should leave the updated review of who we all are now and make sure it's five stars. <laughs> This third episode of the new season of Game of Thrones is fresh in our minds, and people are really mad about it because people can get mad about episodes of Game of Thrones a lot. Uh, this time, outrage were, Twitter. Well, as on they the say. level of you know, you kind of start thinking Facebook that Game of worse. Thrones can't shock you anymore, and then someone hunts the most dangerous game, and then in the next episode, uh, this incestuous brother sister pair uh, managed to have a rape scene together, which was pretty uncomfortable to watch, especially because uh, Jamie Lannister, the uh, Brother. Alleged rape scene. What's that? Sorry, I'm getting ahead of you. I'm getting oh. ahead of you, but I said alleged rape scene. Oh, boy. Okay. Oh I really God. don't want to get into the definition <laughs> well, <laughs> of what is and is not rape in this conversation. I'm more interested in the idea that in the books, this uh, sex scene between Jamie and Cersei Lannister happens, and you're kind of getting internal monologue, and you're getting more of a sense that this is a kind of terrible thing that they're doing. They're having sex in the uh, next to their son's corpse, which is pretty gruesome. Um, but that it is something <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem to be a talking point well, for people. Let me let me for let some me say reason. something. About, wait, I and, mean, and, first of all, yeah, I think talking. Wait, 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 wait. Like, let, let Katie finish. Yeah, I'm trying to set up what we're talking about at least. Um, in the book, it's more. I of thought a consensual... you had done so adequately. What? I thought you had done so adequately. Oh, well, in the book, it is more more. potential scene. In the show, it is depicted as a pretty straight-up rape. She is not interested the entire time. She kind of resists, beats her fists, and it's a pretty tough scene to watch. And this is the second time that Game of Thrones has taken a sex scene that, in the book, is nuanced and kind of a, you know, a very strange power dynamic, but has slightly more dynamics to it. The first one being 
uh, scene between Daenerys and Khal Drogo when they get married, um, and when they turn it into more of a straightforward rape, and a lot of people are troubled by why they would make that choice. And I don't read the book, so I don't have your, your language a good here, argument I find for what doesn't, doesn't work. My what? I, I, I find your language troubling here, uh, especially the use of the word nuance. Um, first of all, I should say that it would be in my own best interest, and I think I'd probably speak for Dave and Patches as well, to abstain from this conversation. I've managed to do it for most of the day online, uh, and I think it's probably better off because uh, the, all, all, all I can really do here is put my foot in my mouth. Um, but as far as the nuance... Yeah, but we always, all, we welcome that. We welcome that. We so. do, we do. Uh, well, one of the things that George R. R. Martin pointed out when he posted on his live journal uh, today was that the context of the book is completely different. Yes. Uh, he makes points out that Jamie had been in, uh, had just arrived at King's Landing in the book, whereas in the show he's been there for several weeks, if not longer. There are a number of other factors at work. Uh, and frankly, the, the TV show version of it, in my estimation, is far more nuanced than the book, which is coming explicitly from Jamie's point of view as opposed to a sort of third-person point of view, an objective perspective as it is in the TV show. Also, the writing is awful. It is, it is nothing uh, – it is a half step above what you would find in Fifty Shades of Grey. Nuance is the last word that I would use to describe it. In the book, uh, you mean. In, the, Mar- in Martin's in writing. Book, in the book. Exactly. I think that the dynamic is far more interesting uh, in the television show, but I'm not really interested in whether or not I find it more interesting. Um, what I have found is uh, my overall response, and I, I think this can be safe enough, is that people seem to have a lot of fun inflexibly uh, projecting their morality onto a world where justice is meted out by uh, people fighting to the death and where dragons are also a thing. And where we have a couple, an incestuous couple, who are the uh, – one of them was the queen of the country and her brother. And, and they are standing beside the grave of their inbred son who is now dead, was the king. And they're having sex. I mean it's like it, – it, there. it's so it, – mind-boggling to me that people would project their real-world values onto this scene, which exists in such a unique and heightened universe that it it seems to be very much on its own terms. I think that uh, people are relating to Jamie and Cersei's relationship a little bit too closely and sort of doing it at the expense of context and everything that the world has taught us about how but doesn't, it operates. And doesn't the show allow you – doesn't the show allow for your real world values to be projected upon it? I mean you're not supposed to think that Jamie's a hero after he does that. This is also the guy who pushed Bran out of a window. I mean the bad guy. I, I didn't I, say I don't, that he was a hero. No, no. That's what, that they're – but I'm trying to figure out what uh, people would be outraged by, like what – and this this is not the first time this has happened. You know, whenever there's something provocative the fundamental- in movies, people seem to get stirred up. But I'm not exactly sure what um, seems to be provoking people here. Like what what are they outraged by? We're just worried that there is the a rape or – parts of the show – is one of the, the heart – the beating heart of the show as far as I can tell is um, about – the sort of gray areas, the morality of this world. I mean, this is a, a cutthroat place where even the no one is really, uh, you know, sort of morally infallible. The people that the show, you know, presents to us as heroes are cut down, and the people who survive often do so at the expense of countless innocent lives. Um, and that's that's the universe the show is. I mean, I think that it, its main theme is really uh, how morality is not necessarily black and white and how and we saw in this very episode with the Hound and Arya subplot how, uh, you know, good is a relative virtue. And I, I think people are very bad at reading drama. And I also think that any conversation, and hopefully this will get us a little bit more on track, about uh, you know, it's especially of this nature, that's looking at how it deviates from the book in a different medium entirely is missing the point. Because this is not a book. It doesn't operate like a book. And frankly, I think the decisions that they've made in regards to sexuality in the television show and orienting it from the male gaze as a 
window into sort of the power dynamics in Westeros as they're slowly shifting. I mean, it's important that we haven't seen the Khaleesi naked since season one, uh, when she was in a subservient relationship first with Khal Drogo, and then we saw her nipples briefly when she was attempting to sue somebody in season three. Anyway. Um, <laughs> David runs the Mr. Helpful. Skin page for uh, Game <laughs> no, of Thrones, just, so he's pretty sure entire, of all these instances. I just rewatched the entire series, and that was something that jumped out at me. But anyway, I so that's my take on it. It sure did. I mean, uh, without sort of going into the details of the book and what the world of Game of Thrones is, because if you guys haven't noticed, we have another podcast in our feed that's going to be doing that with myself and Joanna Robinson, <laughs> and fun guests. For the eight people who've read all of the Game of Thrones books and watched the show and blah, blah, blah. Well, well I mean, it starts off. Yeah, it starts off each episode talking about a little bit about, you know, the philosophy of the show and how like knowing something's going to happen is different than knowing how it's going to be executed. And so to that point, I want to talk more to Katie's, uh, you know, how somebody was outraged. People on the Internet have been outraged because they changed it from the book. Where to me, it's really not so much this is the morality of Game of Thrones and get used to it. Or so much that they changed it from the books and therefore, you know, HBO is sensationalizing whatnot. It's that we've reached this interesting point in the conversation we have along Zeitgeist TV shows where if you use something, it's like a, a trigger warning sort of culture or whatnot, where if you use something in a narrative uh, way like rape, you also take on everybody's natural yes. opinions to that Depiction actual... Depiction does not equal endorsement. Well, but I think yeah. there's an argument... Did we learn nothing from Wolf of Wall Street? I think there's... I mean, oh, go, go ahead, Katie. You, no, you should finish your thought, Dave. Well, I mean, I just think that it's it got to be really tough for the people on the other side who are trying to bring these very complex stories to light in a very brief amount of time, relatively... And we know we've have seen the director give an interview with Alan Sepinwall where he felt that it, you know, started off forceful and became consensual. And so just because he failed at doing that doesn't mean that the fiction doesn't exist for the characters, not necessarily for us to have a conversation about using rape as a narrative. Is it, is and it it's weird? understandable is it how weird? that's a troubling phrase to say it became consensual. I think that that I think was probably not the ideal really phrasing. Dumb. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's David, also you could like never put your foot more in the mouth than he did. Probably <laughs> yeah. when that he said that. Is it weird uh, that? Um, yeah. Is it weird? Is it weird that the, the whole like the the whole rape moment in that episode didn't really phase me? It seemed to fit within the context and and this kind of tapestry that Game of Thrones is weaving here. Um, more so that I was more disturbed that they were having sex next to the dead corpse of their son, their incestual son. I mean, you really right. I mean, um, do you have to choose I think that's, what's most disturbing. It's all disturbing. Just go with yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the point was that <laughs> the point was to communicate how disturbing it was in the interaction between these two characters and what they do when they choose something like rape, even if you know these characters were building to it and the scene was building to it. They also take on everybody's you know, real life responses to rape because this is a story and not like something that actually happened. Well, I think and you're there's talking also about, the idea yeah, that it... Dave, what I think you're talking about with your, you know, saying that the sugar warning culture and talking about narrative devices is that rape can often be used as a really lazy narrative device where it's people saying like, what is the worst possible thing that can happen to this female character? And it's always rape. It's such a, like a hoary trope that's used just to, you know, depict some kind of trauma inflicted on a female character. And I, I mean, I haven't watched anything past Has that happened in recent... Has that happened in recent memory? Oh, I'm I know sure that's something it has. that people I'm bring sure, up a lot. It's something that happens I bet we're just watching better movies. I mean, it seems to be happening a lot in video games, if I recall. No, it in happened in Kick-Ass 2 last summer. <laughs> I think uh, what Katie's uh, saying, saying is spot. I think what Katie's saying is spot on. Well, uh, and it does. But at it's the same not time, relevant to Game of Thrones, is what I was trying to finish. I haven't seen it past this episode, but I, that does not seem to be how they're using this device, which kind of indicates the level to which we can understand these characters on Game of Thrones. So I, just, I, right. I, I, I think mean, it's, uh, that's a problem, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I'm trying right. not to come down on either side in terms of the characters because we'll save that for our podcast about the characters. But what I'm saying is that I think people, what's happening is people are sort of making this about the issue, which is fine, except when you have things like a Time Magazine blog that starts, you know, reading in and being like, how, well, something can't become consensual. And that implies that, you know, these actors have these views on male female relationships. And that just becomes attributing beyond the art form, which I think goes a little it's bit beyond. It's so it. dangerous. It's about, it becomes about condemning the actors, 
the writers when the show does absolutely nothing to suggest that it's condoning Jamie's behavior. We know nothing until this point about what Cersei's reprisal will be, how she feels about it. We're, the show in no way has valorized Jamie at all in the previous few years. It, it made him seem a little bit more conventionally good over the previous few seasons, and this sort of turns over the apple cart in an interesting way, but it in no way is saying, you know, pat on the back, good for him for doing this. But people are so quick to equate, to equate the depiction of a crime, particularly uh, rape, with uh, an endorsement of that crime. And I think it just makes us all worse viewers as a result. Well, I mean, if, if yeah, if you overreact, but I do think that this is the time to have the conversation. And I think that that's a good thing. I think it's just make sure that you know, you get your yelling out on your Tumblr blog where no one sees it and treat your friends with respect. But wouldn't the time to, well, I agree with all of that. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't the time to have the conversation be when we know a little bit more about how the story is going to weigh in on the fallout of this? Well, that's, I mean, that's the beauty, that's be the beauty of television. Um, you know, Jamie's been swinging like a pendulum since the beginning of, of the show. He's been an awful person and then we, he seems to have redeemed himself in the end of the third season and into the fourth. And then suddenly he swings back the other direction when he's lost his arm and his dad hates him and all of a sudden he rapes his sister that he says he's in love with. I mean, it's just, we, we need to see the pendulum swing back or swing even further in the other direction. I mean, there's, there's no, time for fallout anymore the conversation is so immediate i mean i guess that's our problem too no, <laughs> we're not, having it but it's not a bad thing to have the conversation be immediate you still have what you've seen you have a week to process it that's how this kind of but like game of thrones and cable television is functioning like a longer narrative it's functioning like a film oh, it's no, like it we're discussing is. we're discussing halfway through a movie um we're taking a break so and like powwowing david about right. and Katie, like this david is right why now. i think i know yeah, i am why, david uh this is why recap culture can be so vile because Everybody is just looking to fill the void with incomplete information, and I just don't—I don't think it, it's necessarily helpful. Although it could be in theory, but I don't think in execution it's helpful to learning how to properly sort of process an episodic story. Um, the thing I—the well, thing anyway. I want to say in favor of the people who were upset by this is that the, the idea of putting more rape into entertainment is not something that I relish, and I, I don't think—I'm not saying that the people who write Game of Thrones relish it either, but. I do worry about the people making the show relying on that in the way that I was talking about before in a hackier way and kind of a way to up the stakes by making it Does even it seem worse. hacky to you? Does this come off as hacky? Because, I mean, they're, Jamie and Sersha's relationship is all about sexuality. I mean, they're so violent to each other. Not, not Cersei. Cersei, not sorry. Cersei is a different person. Cersei <laughs> um, No, I, I mean... I, I can't I keep track of the names of Game of Thrones, and I will admit that. Well, like we keep saying, like we haven't seen what happens next, and unlike Dave, I don't know what happens next. And so, yeah, I'm not going to say that this was a horrible, egregious misstep, but I just I want to like just raise one little eyebrow when I see something that was written in one way already turn into a different narrative and involving rape in it. I just, it's just it's not something that we necessarily need more of. And I would well, I want Game of Thrones to continue, but it is that a it double has other ideas and other tricks up its sleeve, which it usually does. It is a double-edged sword because, at the same time, while I agree that rape is a terrible thing to uh, visualize to you know an empty ending, um, if you can't sort of justify it in your story, it really is uh, the worst kind of laziness. But at the same time, I think it's incredibly dangerous to say that, uh, or even imply that you want to take something that occurs tragically too often in the real world and simply eliminate it from no, our entertainment so. because and because that's and and rape is a i mean this is not a pleasant fact but it is a currency in the world of game of thrones to an extent i mean it's you know, not a consensual one although you know sex is treated in a way that uh is certainly i think people in this day and age at least in the western world and uh or the civilized world would find barbaric um, not to imply the Eastern world isn't civilized. That's an unexpected way of putting my foot in my mouth. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, well, <laughs> the, uh, but I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, it has, it, I agree that it's always worth investigating, um, in certain parameters and with respect to the understanding that depiction is not endorsement. Uh, but at the same time, there, there, it, there is uh, a danger in simply saying that this is something that we can't put on television because yeah. there should be nothing. I'm that in we can't no way suggesting censorship. Dave, take us. I out. guess speaking as somebody who knows what is going to happen in the future, and we'll be discussing it on a future podcast in this feed that you've probably been accidentally getting. I apologize if you don't want it. Um, but uh, I think that 
we'll learn that this was a good place to have the conversation because I think this show is going to be able to sustain the consequences of what it accidentally did. Which, but which is something Game of Thrones is very good at doing in general, which is why I have faith in yeah. it. Yeah. Yay. A good conversation about... Oh, God. Nope. Right nope. at the end. Nope. Facebook or follow me on Twitter, you may have seen that I spent this past weekend in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, home of Dollywood, which is a theme park. It's about 28 years old at this point. It is named for Dolly Parton, who is a country singer who, I mean, let's be honest, she, her, she is still very famous. Her, the peak of her fame was a while ago, and yet her theme park continues to rake in visitors. It's looking, What are you talking about? Joyful Noise just came out a few years ago. I did She's a huge star. I, you know what? I... I couldn't. I don't know that there are very many celebrities who I enjoy and admire more than Dolly Parton. So I will not say a single bad word about her. But the fact that there is somebody who is not a megastar who is drawing people into their theme park in the middle of Tennessee like that is fascinating. And what's wonderful about Dollywood is both that it is a theme park. It has four roller coasters and it's got big scary rides and it's got airbrush T-shirts and terrible food, terrible free food. And all the other stuff you'd expect. Free food? Terrible food. <laughs> I would never food. expect free food from a theme park. Oh, Wait. my God. No, I said... Fried food. I said terrible for you food. Oh, terrible oh. for you. I yes. thought you were pronouncing fried freed. And I'm like, what? Are, well, where are you my, from? My southern accent got really weird when I spent the weekend in Tennessee. What are the rides? You never come, I'm hurt that you never come to my theme park. <laughs> what, what, what was your... What, we have... <laughs> What is your theme park? The Mopa Coaster. No. Um, no, what, what so what are the rides slide? Are the are the rides branded Dolly no, like Dolly okay, Parton so the, movies or songs? No, are they her boobs? Like a roller coaster much, where you go around her boobs? The theme park itself is much less about Dolly Parton as a whole than you would expect. I mean it's called Boo. Dollywood, the, the and her face is on the billboards outside. But it's not like it's just kind of this one shrine to this one woman. For a large part of it, it is just a regular theme park that happens to be in these beautiful Smoky Mountains. It's very green. It's very well-maintained. There's a bald eagle sanctuary that takes up a large portion of it. You can go and just <laughs> see all these bald eagles like living in the side of this mountain who look pretty happy in this huge space. Um, but there is one corner that has her tour bus and has a dolly museum and has this building that is full of all her old costumes and props from her movies and all her awards and a replica of her childhood home that's in the middle of the park. So I get the feeling that it kind of grew out of being this tribute to the superstar who could bring people to the middle of nowhere, and over the years has grown into a much more traditional theme park, while still kind of being a theme park about the Smoky Mountains. They have all these different, like, artisans where like you know, they'll do, like, ironworking, and they'll build leather hats, and there's a corn grist mill, and it kind of has this and there's people playing uh, bluegrass music all over the place there's a lot there's a big cultural performance space within it where a lot of people are just like old people who come to Dollywood and sit and watch people play music all day because they don't want to ride a roller coaster <laughs> so it has this like very it's not really a homespun feel because it's still a theme park but it feels authentic in this different way it feels like it is of, of a piece with where it is which is not really what I was expecting because I was kind of thinking it would be all about Dolly all the time but that makes it a better park. It means that even if you don't care who Dolly Parton is, which most of the kids who are going there, I assume, don't, they have a great time because they're in this pretty great theme park with pretty good rides. It's is it sort of like Walt Disney World? Like I don't know. The, but there's I guess Walt Dis Disney World. Disney World's totally branded. Disney was. Yeah. Like I would want to go to Dolly World, Dollywood, and see all Dolly Parton stuff. Like that's the joy of Disney World, right? That we get to kind of enjoy our favorite Disney movies or favorite Disney characters through rides. Uh, but Dollywood yeah. is not like that. No, no. I mean, you're not going to get like the 9 to 5 ride as much as I would go <laughs> as a 9 to 5 ride. The rhinestone ride. <laughs> be in, yeah, the, you, the, Are the ride, hours of the park at least 9 to 5? Uh, oh, boy. No, they were like oh, 9 my. to 8. That would be, no, 9 to 5 is not nearly long enough for a theme park to be. Well, are they the new working hours? Yeah. Um, <laughs> nine, yeah. 9 to 9. Exactly. That's exactly how we all work now. 
Um, yeah, what was great about it is that if you were seeking out the Dolly Parton stuff, there was amazing stuff in there. The picture, like all the pictures of the famous people she's met were great. And there are all these like notes that were written by her to her friends, supposedly. There's like a very Disney-ish aspect to that. And then it's just kind of like Six Flagsy, but a very well-maintained Six Flags with very friendly local Tennesseans who take their time in all customer service-related ventures. Uh, <laughs> running things and it was such a pleasant and delightful experience and just kind of this gem of a theme park hidden in the middle of nowhere in this town that's basically like Myrtle Beach or Branson, Missouri or any other like cheesy theme park town. Also, she And how were the strippers? Oh, you know, the strippers are all religious and they uh, lecture you about God. The the thing that had more Dolly Parton than the actual park itself was the Dixie Stampede, which is labeled Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede. And it's a franchise that also exists in Branson and Myrtle Beach. Um, but at the very end of it, you know, there's a, it's a battle between North and South and they've been, you know, you, they're divided the audience. It's not really about the Civil War, but you are divided North and South. And at the end, she comes out and she sings a song about how we're all one America while the horse riders, uh, wave American flags and wear secret. Wait, she? Well, like, on a, vi- like a video. God, I wish she was there every night. That'd be amazing. Animatronic Dolly Parton <laughs> comes out. Westworld style. It's like a big video screen of her singing about America and it's kind of, I mean, oh I'm my like, God. She's just like the spirit of this place that has grown so much bigger than she is. And, uh, she's ghost in the machine. At Dolly World, yeah. she'll, she'll be frozen under her statue, Walt like Disney, Disney style. Did you know that yeah, she yeah, has yeah. a new album coming out? In like, like <sighs> she next doesn't month? she? Of course, I know that Dolly Parton has a new album coming out. I know Please, you what do you take me for? Uh, two, two, two things to wrap up, Katie. One, I really feel like the four of us need to push to have our next live episode of Fighting in the War Room in at Dollywood. Dolly World. Two, Dollywood, get it right. Come Dollywood, on. Dolly World, yeah. Dollywood. We're never coming now. Now, you know, we're <laughs> failing. Um, see, this is why we need to be more active. Uh, two, I, what was the best ride or what's the best attraction? What was the best thing that you did there? Well, I mean, I would say Dolly's Museum because it was completely fascinating. But there's a roller coaster. I think it's called the Soaring Eagle or something along those lines. It's one of those roller coasters where your feet are dangling and it had four loops and it went really fast and it went through the trees and you felt like Can you say it more in your Dolly Parton accent? I, I, I wouldn't dare try to talk like Dolly Parton. You, you have a southern accent. Do, you don't get to like show Parton. it off very often. She has like a mountain accent. It's totally different. If you uh, if you want to hear my southern accent, you should uh, come to my wedding in two weeks, which I believe you're planning to do. Okay, clear clear your calendar. The rest of you listening, sorry. Maybe they'll take some surreptitious recordings of me. I think the important thing we learned is fuck Six Flags. I don't want to talk. About things we've gone through Though it's hurting me Now it's history I've played all my cards And that's what you've done too So I'm here with Karina Longworth. She is the author of a book that... Is it just called Meryl Streep? Is it called Meryl Streep, the biography? How does this go? Meryl Streep, Anatomy of an Actor. Ah, that's right. That's such a better title than just Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> it is a book that looks at 10 films of Meryl Streep's as kind of a method of assessing her career. And then in what I don't know if that was a twist from the format of this series that's published by Fiden or if it's something that you came up with, kind of has a feminist read on what her career was. And I, it seems to me that the assignment was that you kind of were just going to look at her via 10 films and then you kind of came along the feminism angle as it happened. Was that... And it sounds like that's something that surprised you when you tackled that topic. Yeah, it definitely was not part of the original sort of commission. Um, um, And in fact, like, I'm not totally sure that the people who edited the book really understood what I was doing. (laughs) Um, Because the way that those books work is that they uh, are commissioned by uh, the French office, the Cahiers de Cinema people, um, and they don't have a native native English speaker in the bunch. Um, And so half the time I wasn't really sure if they really like understood my book. (laughs) So do you feel like you kind of got away with something by doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I mean, like I wrote this previous book about Al Pacino and I went through this whole process of writing it over like eight months and all of this editing. And it wasn't until the book was about to come out that somebody was like, um, we think it's actually kind of weird that you devoted an entire chapter to Jack and Jill and never mentioned Carlito's way. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, you probably should have asked me about that yeah. maybe eight months ago. But. So you get the freedom to hang yourself with. <laughs> but in this case, you actually kind of got some good stuff out of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, would, I definitely like I never would have thought that I would have written a book about a Hollywood actress being a secret feminist. Yeah. But that 
was the thing that really just popped out at me when I started doing the research about Meryl Streep. Well, there are so many ways that I learned kind of when I was taking film classes in college that there, you know, people will try to apply sociology or feminism or something to films and a lot of times get it wrong and kind of like criticize a movie for, you know, or even looking at something like Wolf of Wall Street recently, like not having good female characters as being kind of like critiquing it on a feminist level. And there's, it's kind of hard to marry those things with actual film criticism. And I'm wondering if you had read kind of those weird versions of that and really had to find your own way to get feminist film critique right when it can be done so incorrectly? Well, I guess I had sort of two different types of experiences. I had the experience of being in graduate school and reading people like Laura Mulvey, who I am able to appreciate are important and have did groundbreaking work, but often sort of come off as being scolding. And they seem to sort of take the, ironically, since she wrote an article called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, but they seem to kind of take the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have this sort of modern day, like Jezebel, let's be angry about everything on the internet yep, stuff. Yep. It's sort of like this outrage culture of, of just trying to find reasons to be mad about stuff. And it's really easy to <clears throat> be mad about things in that sort of fake way on feminist terms. Yeah. Um, and just like holding every film up to the Bechtel test and mm-hmm. just things like that. Um, and what interested me about this pattern I saw in Meryl Streep's career is that she – most of the time she wasn't standing out there and, and championing herself as a feminist. In fact, she was shying away from doing that quite a bit, but she was enacting feminism in her choice of movies and what she brought to it that was more than acting um, or was sort of the richest version of what you can get away with as an actress and a movie star. Yeah, what she does, <clears throat> I think the first of her roles that you write about, or at least one of the early ones is The Deer Hunter, kind of her taking this role to be close to her boyfriend at the time and then taking this part that really isn't anything and making something out of it. And I feel like that I see that happen once in a while with actresses kind of, you know, in a nothing role being able to run away with it. But she was able to do that and then build an entire career off of that. And I wonder if she inspired other people to kind of take that route of it or if even did I mean if even people realize that was what she was doing at the time until a rep- retrospective look like yours comes along and says, oh, yeah, she was really building a foundation for this career that was going to come. I was really surprised in reading things that had been written over the course of time, just, you know, things like contemporary to the movies themselves, that people weren't really talking about this idea of, of her being sort of a female champion um, or a groundbreaker of, or doing something differently. It just wasn't there. Um, and that's why I felt really compelled to put it in there yeah. <laughs> in my analysis of her career. Um, you know, I think that I think that over the past few years, she's sort of come out as a feminist in a way and you know, doing things like the presentation she made at the National Board of Review, Mm -hmm. where she used this opportunity of presenting an award to Emma Thompson to basically like reveal Walt Disney's horrible sexist past. That was amazing. Um, So amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, it's, um, it's, it's still just like not something that people really, they don't really put all the pieces together, I think. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's anyone, I mean, you compare her to kind of Jane Fonda and early in her career and how she really avoided being uh, seen as political like Jane Fonda. But is there anyone who you can think of who's done anything similar on that level, like bringing that kind of feminist approach to things without getting that Jane Fonda brush of being too out there and being too radical to be in movies? I think that you can do after the fact readings of various actresses' careers, you know, and certainly like people like Barbara Stanwyck or um, Joan Crawford have been embraced maybe first as gay icons and then as sort of um, champions of strong women on screen Mm -hmm. um, by women themselves. But I think that the only role model that somebody like Meryl Streep had when she was in her late 20s in the late 70s of somebody who was identifying themselves as a feminist in Hollywood was somebody like Jane Fonda. And she was, you know, just basically her career was defined by that. Um, her career was defined by all of her political actions and it limited her opportunities. It limited her audience. And I think that Meryl Streep made this conscious decision that she wasn't going to limit herself that way, but that didn't mean that she wasn't going to be who she was. When you go back and you see someone who's smart, this smart about her career and obviously this talented, and then you watch something that isn't really a good movie, like you write about the Iron Lady, which is important in her career, but not a good movie. Does it just drive you crazy that she still manages to like skid into something terrible? I, I don't know how you felt about August Osage County, but that was, you know, again, not something that went oh, I hate over it. as well. <laughs> terrible. It's a lot of shouting. Yeah, it's a lot of shouting. It's a lot of actors who are desperately in need of direction and not getting any. Yeah. So th- th- um, does it drive you crazy to watch that happen? No, I don't know. I think I'm more surprised when somebody like Streep has 
such a long career and there are so many good films. Yeah. Um, especially for a female performer um, and for somebody that has been working for so long over so many phases of her life, sometimes you really are just subject to whatever's available, like whatever movie is available when you are available. Mm-hmm. And, and so just the idea that, and like really when you think about it, the idea that any movie ever becomes good <laughs> given like all of the factors that go into it. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, especially nowadays where, you know, just the, the mandates in terms of, of what Hollywood studios are willing to pay for have become really, really limited. Like mm-hmm. there's a very narrow type of film being made. Do you have any other actresses, either of Meryl Streep's age or just similarly like, you know, over 30 who you're rooting for a similar comeback for or anyone who you think that's possible for? Oh, I don't know. I I still think that Julia Roberts is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that she's one of the, the best movie stars of the past 20 or 30 years. And, mm-hmm. and she hasn't really had a chance to show that recently. It's been a long time. Yeah. I always wonder why Glenn Close hasn't had, like Albert Nobbs was just such a snore. And then she just really <laughs> can't seem to figure out what that route back into things. And she was such a big deal for such a long time. And just now yeah. it's, it's like it never even happened. But, you know, she's somebody that kind of found a niche on TV and she's found a niche on theater. Um, you know, I think that – I don't know if you read that Tad Friend story about Anna Faris a, a couple years mm-hmm. ago. That was yeah. Like towards What's Your Number? But I actually just read that for the first time recently. Um, and it really is interesting the way that it talks about how, like, you know, the, just the options are so few for an actress who wants to do something – other than these very specific types mm-hmm. and that the only place where that's not true is television. And that was two years ago. And I think things are, you know, there, there are way more opportunities now than there was even then. Although Anna Ferris is the one who's on a CBS sitcom. That's right. like the that's, most typical that's the thing. ironic thing about that story where it's like, you know, documenting her struggling often with female screenwriters to pitch these movies that are at least like trying to do something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, two years later she's on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to move on slightly to the other thing that you've been doing, which also has so much to do with female stars, the, you, you've launched a podcast. The first one, it, it, I find it really nice to be able to start a podcast and not have to know anything about what's going on. Just being like, it's going to tell you a story. And all you have to know is it's <laughs> going to tell you about a story about Kim Novak. And then you have the second one about, uh, it's just two episodes at this point, right? Yeah, I'm working on a third right now. Yeah, so it's it's two episodes in. It's two vastly different stories. One about Kim Novak's career, you know, full of fascinating old studio details, and then this crazy concept album that Frank Sinatra made in the late '70s. Yeah. Um, and so you've started this podcast when you kind of, you know, you've quit your daily or weekly critic job, kind of able to write these books, do things. So why start a podcast, which is so damn hard to do? It is really hard to do, um, but. So I quit my job, I guess, like a year and a half ago, and I was writing the Meryl Streep book, and then I was sort of, you know, waiting while I was doing that, and after I did, was doing that, I was kind of like just waiting around and letting things come to me. I, I did very little freelance pitching. I would write stories when I was asked to, but um, another, I got another book commission. That book is coming out later this year. It's called Hollywood Frame by Frame. It's basically a photo book that I did the research for, mm. um, and then uh, I got asked to teach at Chapman University, which I'm doing right now. But I, I've never been in a position like that where I've waited for work to come to me. I've always created my own opportunities. Mm-hmm. And over really the past few months, I've started feeling really frustrated because I feel like I look out into the world of media, like <laughs> the internet and magazines that are still sticking around. And I just don't see a lot of opportunities to do the kind of work I want to do, mm-hmm. um, whether it, it, that's just the subject matter or it's you know the length and the depth. Um, and I just, I felt like I really needed to create a space in which I could do exactly what I want to do and do it all myself and not be compromised by having to please anybody else or fit into somebody's brand or anything like that. And yeah, it would be a lot of work and I would have to teach myself how to use garage bands <laughs> and, and like, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. But if I did everything myself, then I could do it exactly the way I wanted to do it. And that and, was, and that felt better than writing, which I guess is something that you've done much more of, but might be less of an adventure. Yeah. You know, this is actually a throwback to what I was doing when I was in college. I went to art school and I, I was basically making video essays about media that I was watching. Oh man. And back were, then it must've it, been so much harder because it wasn't like, you didn't have Final Cut or GarageBand like on your computer. I, I guess. had Final Cut, but But your computer was, was at um, least slower. <laughs> it was, you know, it was kind of actually before DVDs really. I, I, most of the stuff I was using, I was using all found footage, but I was 
taking them from VHS tapes and like feeding the VHS tapes into like a DV camera and feeding the DV camera through Firewire into my computer. Mm -hmm. And it was this like sort of at home lo-fi thing. Um, And that was just sort of what I kind of invented a language of doing that that was something I was comfortable doing, but there was no outlet for it. This was pre-YouTube. The art world didn't get it. Yeah. The film festival world wouldn't have taken anything because it was all found footage. And <laughs> totally so I little. gave up. I like I, I applied to graduate school like with those videos as my portfolio. Um, but I just figured, you know, it would be easier to just be a writer than to try to do this thing. Yeah. And now I'm in this position where I just I don't really care what's easier anymore because I don't feel like I as again, like I don't feel like the stuff I want to do fits in anywhere. And so I just wanted to create a space for what I wanted to do. Well, you had, I mean, you worked for a blog for a long time, for several different blogs, and kind of when they started, it felt like the internet was in maybe a different place where it was somehow friendlier to more cinephile-focused mm. stuff. And I don't know if it has just got, if it's gotten worse and like, you know, more blockbuster-focused and more like 10 Things You Miss in the Dark Night since then, or if mm. it, there were just more sites like that. But do you feel like you've watched this devolution away from what you were able to do and now you're maybe getting more back to what it was like in the early days of Cinematical or something like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, because even back then, like, we had to do stuff for traffic for sure. Yeah. But there was also, at least like with the early days of Cinematical, you were able, I was able to kind of do whatever I wanted to do as long as I hit certain numbers. And I feel like when I, there is, I mean, there are definitely a couple of, of exceptions to this. Like I, I've worked recently for Grantland and for Slate and like had really good experiences with the editors there and have been for the most part, like as long as I, you know, as long as once we agree on, on a pitch, <laughs> once yeah. I'm actually given the assignment, then I've been able to do what I want to do with that stuff. But um, I just feel like there is, there's just more concern now with um, with different types of like basically I feel like it's very constrictive in terms of what formats writing can take mm-hmm. um, and you know obviously lists and quizzes are the bread and butter of a lot of places um, yeah. but also so is controversy and um, I guess I'm just also I'm more interested in historical stuff right now than I am current stuff. Um, and I just I want to kind of be able to explore things in a way that I don't feel like there are a lot of places where I can do that. And then I see hist- when I see historical stuff take off online, like I think um, Anne Helen Peterson has done such a good job with that with the mm-hmm. on the hairpin, and even the things she wrote for BuzzFeed, and you see that really go viral, and it really makes me it makes me feel like that that audience is still there somehow, even though I would have thought it wasn't. I mean, do you do you feel like if you wanted to do it, like you could find those historical outlets, even though? you know, obviously you found the other thing to, you, you feel like people are still willing to read it or listening to it, even if it's harder to find them? Yeah, no, I definitely think that people are interested in that stuff. Oh, I mean, definitely nostalgia is something that yeah. does really well online. Um, and anything that's sort of about oddities or weird stuff, like, you know, you're able to get people interested in it. Um, but um, I don't know, I guess I, what I'm doing right now with this podcast is that I really just want to kind of try to do it on my own for a while. And you know, maybe at some point I'll partner with somebody or it'll take on a different shape. Um, but I just, I kind of needed to figure out what it was in my head and, mm-hmm. and put it out into the world in a very specific way. Um, and then we'll see what happens. Do you feel, are you modeling it off of anything in particular? Really, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like most movie podcasts for sure, because so many of those are just mm-hmm. review-based, kind of like, I mean, the one that we do. Um, and it's it's kind of this American life in the way that it uses music, but it's also got this like old newsreel thing, like especially at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like what are you modeling the style of this off of? Well, I guess it's not, it's sort of just a combination of, of influences, you know, I mean, my childhood ambition was to be Elvira. <laughs> so it's, like, on some level, like there, there is like an element of this that is tongue in cheek in the same way that's, that's something like that is. Yeah. Um, but I think that I was just sort of looking for something that I wanted to listen to or that I would want to listen to. And, and that meant I like wanted high quality, it, which I mean, you, you, the production mm-hmm. values are really impressive for something that's, you know, two episodes in. Thank you. It's, we, I think we took a giant leap forward. Uh, I say we. It's not really we. It's like my, my boyfriend like plugged in the microphone, you know, but like, and he, you know, he basically let me borrow this mixer that he wasn't using. You're not supposed like to in, say that in as the a feminist. Basement, He's not supposed to have had any, any role in this. Well, so. no. I mean, it's, it's I, like I went into his office and he had all of this equipment that he wasn't using and I was like, let me use some of this. <laughs> um, and so he carried it upstairs for me and plugged it in. Um, like a true man. But, man. 
Yeah, but you know, it's I definitely took a, a big leap forward from the first episode to the second episode because the first episode I was literally teaching myself how to use GarageBand as I went along, and I was like speaking directly into like a handheld recorder, like the kind of thing you would use to record an interview with somebody. Yeah, and we had the Skype interview where the sound quality wasn't great because of like there was the person on the other end wasn't using a microphone. I hope that the same thing doesn't happen here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think I'll be okay. <laughs> okay, um, but. You know, I just I'm I want to try to figure out how to make it the best quality I can without having to pay anybody to help me. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think at some point, like down the road, like do you imagine yourself like in a radio station doing this on a weekly thing, or is that just not? It, are are you not trying to think that far ahead? I don't want to think that far ahead, but I'm open to whatever happens. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm just having a lot of fun doing it, and when my semester is over, that when the class I teach finishes in a few weeks and I hope to be able to do it at least over the course of the summer, um, do it weekly. So, and are you just ch- at this point just chasing too. after what like stories that you've heard about for years, like just random things that interest you? Like how are, how are these stories coming to you and which ones are you deciding to really devote yourself to? I do have a list of stuff that I, you know, just a, a list that I've kept for a long time of just things that I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it, I think it'll depend week to week. Like sometimes it might be pegged to like a birthday. The next one that I'm doing is pegged to somebody's birthday. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll let it be mysterious, but it's the first <laughs> week of May. If you can think of somebody from old Hollywood who was born in the first week of May, oh, it'll be really game. amazing if anybody figures. We'll this make out it a actually, game. We'll that's a pretty call. obscure figure. But. We'll have people call in and see if there's anybody <laughs> who, who we can come up with. Yeah, but it's then it's like I want to have a recurring feature which I might launch with episode four called the many loves of person X and ah. like it would basically be like following this is not the first person I'm going to do but it would be like following everybody that like Peter Bogdanovich has ever been involved with and how that has had a relationship to the work that they've done. I find that always kind of surprisingly difficult to hunt down like finding I did like you know it's classic internet slideshow about people who have taken each other's dates to the Oscars and finding out who actually dated for, <laughs> and it's really unless they got married it can be really hard to like sort through all of that merc so I'd be totally interested to like because Peter Bogdanovich has really had a lot of people involved in his life yeah I mean I think that you'd probably like maybe you could do just you could like list them off but then like figure like focus on like two or three for each episode um you know like like one of the people that I'd like to do it on is Howard Hughes who just Mm -hmm. literally I mean I don't know if I can swear on this podcast but he literally you can he literally fucked everyone in Hollywood over the course of like a 30-year period. Um, and so it's like some of those stories are more interesting than others. The one that I kind of want to focus on is Ida Lupino, who I like never knew he was involved with um, until I read this thing on Howard Hughes Jr.'s website, which is literally just a list of every woman that like he's discovered that his dad was involved with. Wow. How is that not just like everywhere on the internet? I had no idea it existed. <laughs> That is fast. Like, yeah, I mean, you must be, I guess you, when you're doing this, you have the time to kind of f- fall down those internet rabbit holes and find the stuff that's just out there for the taking. If Well, if that's the fun thing about it is, is just sort of being like, and then I figured out this, and then I figured out that. Like this Frank Sinatra album, I'd been listening to it for like two years and knowing that I wanted to do something about it, but... I just, I wasn't really sure what, and it wasn't until I committed to doing this podcast episode that I like, I found a book where like, there was this letter that the producer of this crazy space album wrote to Frank Sinatra in 1959, basically saying like, I want to write an album about your life. Yeah. Thank you to Clarita Longworth. You can find her podcast at you must remember this podcast.com. You can also follow Karina on Twitter at Karina Longworth, which is spelled, I think, exactly how it sounds like that's spelled. The podcasts are fantastic. Her writing is fantastic. The Meryl Streep book, which you can buy on Amazon, is a really great read. And uh, thank you to Karina for joining us on Fighting in the War Room. That does it for today's podcast. We'll be back on Friday. Patches of spearheading reviews. What are we reviewing? Um, I think we're going to try and do a lock slash blue ruin podcast, but we'll see. Everything is fluctuating. It is a heap of shit this week <laughs> in terms of major releases with brick hey, mansions oh, wait, wait. and other hey. woman and quiet ones. So we're hey, trying patches, to go indie how, here. How's, how's the quiet ones? I cannot. I can't say. I'm under embargo at this moment. <clears throat> But uh, okay, listen, good to, listen know. to Friday's episode for patches to unload my- on the quiet ones. <laughs> unload. That's a good word. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so in the meantime, tell the people who you are. 
I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet all over the place, and I try and put it on my Tumblr, Tumblr, mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And as we said in the beginning of the podcast, we highly recommend, um, after you listen to this, or as you're listening, maybe you're streaming it from this website, fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, you can leave comments there, questions, things that we can bring up in future podcasts. Let's start some more conversations there. We had a great time last week on the Transcendence Podcast. A lot of insight. Um, so do it again, fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. I'm writing these days for uh, The Dissolve and for the AV Club. And you can find all of us together, one big happy family, usually not talking about televised rape on uh, Fighting in the War Room on Facebook. I have some great developments to both my previous plugs. Patches, at that website you were talking about, it's now been split into show-specific pages. So if you go to fightinginthewarroom.com backslash say got spoilers, you'll get our Game of Thrones spoiler show. It's released once a week with me, Dave Gonzalez. I spelled that first part, DA17. It's also my Twitter handle. I write about superhero movie news, Latino Hyper Review. And David, our Facebook page is now the first place, the very first place you will be able to access each episode that we put in our feed, which includes the Game of Thrones podcast, our Tuesday episodes, and our Friday review episodes actually end up on Facebook first. So go friend us there. And if you still have Nick Cage impressions or want to figure out why we need your Nick Cage impressions, you should give us a call at 914-410-6450. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-U-I-R-I-T-H. You can also find our entire podcast arguing about Game of Thrones and who knows what else, but mostly Game of Thrones uh, at F-I-T-W-R Fitworth. You can also answer this week's lightning round question there, which is... In honor of the other women, what's your favorite on-screen marital infidelity? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. 